You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. I bet there are skilled poisoners who could put poison in your chocolate chips and you wouldn't even know. ago, the Romans came for your ancestors. They slaughtered and enslaved millions, put whole villages to the sword and torched the sacred groves. Now they lord it over you from their fine villas while beneath your feet the ground still smokes. But your mother and grandmothers still keep to the sacred ways. All your life you sat at their feet, watched them chop and grind and distill. You've learned which plants healed, which ones make a fine seasoning for rabbit stew, and which ones killed. The plants spoke to you. They unfolded their secrets. You learned how to kill fast and how to kill slow, how to make it look like Jupiter's thunderbolt or a wasting sickness, how to multiply suffering or make it painless. And then one day you cross the mountains and take your talents down into the enemy's gullet. In the city of Rome, blood feuds stain the streets and your special talents are in demand. Word travels and soon they're beating a path to your door. They come to you in secret, at night and disguised, the rich and powerful of ancient Rome. Everyone has someone they want in the ground, a deadly enemy, an abusive husband, unwanted stepchildren, a parent who won't just die and free up the inheritance. You kill them fast and you kill them slow. You make it look like a judgment from the gods. You draw it out like a wasting sickness. You make it horrific for those who want vengeance, painless for those who pay extra for mercy. Before long, your name is feared. Before long, you're in jail. You're afraid the first time. The jailers are not gentle, and you see how the condemned are disposed of. But you have clients in powerful places, so you go free the first time. The second, you're barely imprisoned a day. By the third, you know all the jailers' names, and they know to leave you alone. But the third time takes longer than it should. You pace the length of your filthy cell, wondering if this is the time that sticks. Then your door opens and a cloaked figure enters your cell, a new client, someone very highly placed indeed. She removes her hood and you know her at once. It's the Empress of Rome. She wants you to murder her husband. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Ancient Rome was thick with intrigue. The people at the top had plenty of money and plenty of enemies. In this environment, assassins thrived. The most notorious was a woman named Lacusta the Poisoner. As long as people have been killing each other, they've been doing it with poison, Jenny. One of the earliest records of people messing around with poison dates back to about 3000 BC, when the pharaoh Menes, the semi-mythical first pharaoh who united Upper and Lower Egypt, supposedly cultivated poisonous plants. The Egyptians had an extensive and ancient knowledge of poison pharmacology. The people of ancient Sumeria, China, and India also had a long and illustrious tradition of poisoning. The ancient Chinese had some especially colorful names for their poisons, including something that translates as intestine rupturing poison, crane's red crown, and three laugh death powder, which made its victims give a disturbingly creepy laugh three times before they died. There was also a body melting powder in ancient Chinese lore that could dissolve human flesh and clothes. It isn't clear what a lot of these incredible poisons were or whether they really existed. Jenny, I'm going to take you on a little 
detour because I'm a total mythology nerd and of course I'm going to do that to you. Do you remember the play Medea by Euripides? Yeah, it's like one of my favorite ancient history plays. I love Medea. When Medea's disgraceful former husband Jason, the Jason of the Argonauts, Worst Jason ever. Oh, yeah. He's terrible, Jason. Terrible, Jason. One day I will get a chance to tell you all why, but today is not that day. Anyway, when Medea's ex-husband Jason is about to get married to his second wife, a woman named Glauke, Medea decides she's going to have her revenge and she sends her a poisoned dress and like a poisoned tiara and it causes Glauke to burst into flame. This totally sounds like the ancient Chinese body melting powder, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think a lot of these ancient Chinese poisons, some of them are based in fact. I think the intestine rupturing poison can be traced back to something real, but some of these poisons, we don't know what they are, and they're probably mythological, and that's one of the ones is the body melting poison. But I think that the mythology of a poison that you can sprinkle into clothes, and it would cause the person wearing the clothes to melt or dissolve or die in some way, I think that that was like floating around in mythology from a very ancient time. So that that myth in Medea was drawing on something very ancient even then. Yeah, and Medea was a badass. Let's just let's just get that out there. Lacoste would have approved of her. Oh, I completely agree. So I've I've pulled us off the story, Jenny, but I want to get back now. So while some of the poisons were mythological, there actually were some really deadly real poisons. Poisonous plants were everywhere in the ancient world and they were readily available. They were often used as medicines in non-toxic doses. We're going to start by running down the A to Z of some of the more widely used poisons of the ancient world. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list. Pliny the Elder lists over 7,000 kinds of poisons in his natural history. So, I mean, if you want exhaustive, you can talk to him or read his book. You might actually have to use a Ouija board because he's dead. I mean, I think he'd definitely talk your ear off. I mean, 7,000 different types of poisons. We totally should have pulled out a Ouija board or held a seance in order to get the real dope on this episode. Did we do that? No, because we're slackers. We're slackers. And because maybe, just maybe, we drank wine before we recorded this. We definitely did. I, I think I think Pliny the Elder would have approved. I think he would have. He would have been like, put a little more water in that wine, girls. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Do we water our wine? No, we do not. We're like the Scythians in that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jenny. So take it away with, the, with our list of some of the poisons that were very prominent in ancient myth and history. Right. So some of the ancient world poisons that were pretty common. Um, So we're doing the A to Z, but just so you know, we're actually not going to go through the whole alphabet. Like this is definitely not an alphabet, (laughs) but we're going to start with A and the A one is aconite. And this one has a lot of colorful names, including wolfsbane, mousebane, women's bane, leopard's bane. You're sensing a theme with the bane here, aren't you, Jen? I'm definitely sensing a theme, Jenny. Does this mean that Bane from Batman is going to appear with his crazy mask? He might. I make no promises. I have no control over the characters of Batman and where they go. (laughs) (laughs) We're invoking his name so he might show up. (laughs) If you say it one more time, is it going to be like Bloody Mary? It might be. I've said it, what, three times? Like four times? (gasps) Are you looking into a mirror right now? No, I'm looking into my script for the podcast. (laughs) 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 Maybe that's protection. Anyway, the other two names are Devil's Helmet and Queen of Poisons, which do not have Bane in them. Crap, I said Bane. Damn it, Jenny. Anyway, we're moving on. We're pretending that didn't happen. It's a plant with cylindrical looking flowers that look like little purple helmets. They come in a range of colors, including purple, blue, white, pink, and yellow. And the ancient Greeks used it to poison the tips of their spears and arrows. Ooh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and you can actually tell if you're looking at like, you know, you're in a museum and you're looking at, say, an arrowhead. If there's a little groove down the center of it, it's possible that that was used for poison delivery. So aconite figures prominently in ancient myth. According to my man Homer, the original plant grew where the drool of the three-headed hellhound Cerberus fell to earth. Medea tried to poison Theseus with it, and when Athena drizzled it over the head of the weaver Arachne, she was turned into a spider. The ancient Goths, Alaric's people, <clears throat> Jenny's boyfriend. That's right. It's my boy. They called aconite wolfsbane because they believed it would turn you into a werewolf if you swallowed it. Aconite starts you off with violent diarrhea and vomiting, weakness, 
and paralysis before moving into an arrhythmic heartbeat, organ failure, and finally death. It was known in ancient Rome as the stepmother's poison or the mother-in-law's poison. It seemed to be a popular choice for people looking to get rid of their family members. In his natural histories, Pliny the Elder tells the story of a man named Calpurnius Bestia who murdered his wives in their sleep by smearing his finger with aconite and touching their genitals with it, hence the name Women's Bane. Oh, that's so awful. It's actually going to get worse in this podcast, so brace yourselves. Yeah, maybe a trigger warning and also like, oh, Calpurnius Bestia, you horrible human being. You're the worstia. So unfortunately, as Jenny said, this tracks. Aconite is indeed deadly enough to kill at a touch. In fact, as recently as 2014, a gardener collapsed and died of organ failure after handling an aconite plant on the grounds of an estate where he'd been working. Yeah, no word if he was handling it with his bits or not. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope not. (laughs) I don't think he was, but if he was, he'd probably die even faster because, you know, mucous membranes and it's a delicate area. So, guys, we made it onto the letter B. Yay! Belladonna. Belladonna is also known as deadly nightshade. And belladonna is a plant that produces sweet berries that look like delicious blueberries. But you should definitely not put these into your blueberry pancakes because this plant is one of the deadliest in the world. And I'm just going to say this right now, Jenny, and you're going to disagree with me, but blueberries do not belong in pancakes. Chocolate chips are nothing. I mean, I just, I disagree. I think blueberry pancakes are the, are, are the shiz. <laughs> are the shiz? Well, here's the thing, Jenny. I don't have any chance of confusing belladonna with chocolate chips. Now, do I? So, if you make pancakes, I'm not eating them because I know you put belladonna in them. I bet there are skilled poisoners who could put poison in your chocolate chips and you wouldn't even know. I'm still going to. This is my hill. Chocolate chip pancakes are greater than blueberry pancakes. Is you're just going to die on the chocolate chip hill? <laughs> okay. I mean, whatever you want, Jen. I'm not going to argue with you. I also enjoy chocolate chips. But all I'm saying is, would somebody please think of the pancakes and not put belladonna in the pancakes? because. The pancakes would then be poisoned. Yeah, then you can't eat pancakes. And pancakes are delicious. Pancakes are delicious. Consider the pancakes. Even if they have blueberries. You can always pick the blueberries out. Or or eat them. But just beware, if you eat them, they might actually be belladonna. So, you know, just be warned. So, guys, don't come to brunch at our house. <laughs> right. Maybe don't come to brunch at our place. <laughs> Historically, in small doses, belladonna was sometimes used as a cosmetic. Um, and that's actually a pretty common theme. Like a lot of the poisons we're going to talk about here that were really deadly in, in larger doses were in smaller doses used for everyday things. Women in medieval Europe used to put drops of it in their eyes to dilate their pupils. It paralyzed the muscles that caused the pupils to constrict. And I guess this was considered sexy back then. But if you did this too much, you could go blind. So Jen, have you ever gone to the eye doctor and had your pupils dilated? No, I'm absolutely terrified of anyone putting anything in my eyes. Okay, so I've gone to the eye doctor and had my pupils dilated and it's really uncomfortable. I think I did it in college, which was like kind of a long time ago, but I remember it being this extremely uncomfortable thing where you have no depth perception and it kind of gives you a headache and you kind of can't see or do anything for a while until it wears off. So it kind of baffles me that people would use this as a cosmetic because it must have been really, really uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what that would have been like. It would have been really terrible. So in addition to this, in non-fatal doses, belladonna gives you vivid hallucinations. And these trips were usually really, really bad. And they could last three or four days after ingestion. The Wikipedia entry for belladonna describes the experience as follows. The use of belladonna as a recreational drug is reported to bring out predominantly bad trips that the users never want to repeat for as long as they live. I'm just... Just get that in your brain, guys. No no repeats. Definitely no repeats. The trips induced by belladonna are threatening, dark, demonic, hellish, frightening, and terrifying. I mean, whew. That is a whole lot of really terrifying adjectives is what that is. Yeah. Those are adjectives I don't want to repeat, Jenny. Right. How many adjectives is that? One, two, three, four, five, six really dire adjectives. So definitely do not try and do belladonna recreationally. 
<laughs> but however, for some reason, sometimes people would try to do that, use belladonna for fun. It doesn't sound fun. But in addition to the really bad trips, this is extremely dangerous. It's super easy to OD and die on this stuff. Interestingly, though, people in the ancient world used belladonna in recipes for something called flying ointment, an ointment that produced extremely intense visions of flying and orgiastic revelry. So this is a, an ointment that you would rub on your skin. These ointments are most strongly associated with practitioners of witchcraft in the Middle Ages, but they're actually a lot older. A woman in Apuleius's golden ass, 160 AD, transforms herself into an owl using a special ointment. There's a scene in the Iliad where the goddess Hera anoints herself with the oil of ambrosia before flying to Mount Olympus. The Iliad dates from probably around 800 BC. Right. So those are examples of women in particular anointing themselves or rubbing an ointment on themselves and then turning into birds. And this was an ointment that had all these incredibly toxic ingredients in it. It was specially calibrated to cause this extremely intense trance experience when you rubbed it just on your skin that would produce a sensation of flying. Christian authors from the Middle Ages will tell you that recipes for flying ointment involved the fat of dead babies. And this is probably not true, but the real ingredients are so toxic that a few modern researchers who tried to reproduce recipes for flying ointment have died in the attempt. Jeez. Yeah. Flying ointment, it's super fascinating. You should totally go down a Wikipedia research hole on it. But please don't try to make it. We're not encouraging you to do that. Please don't. Right. Don't try to make it. Bad idea. Appreciate from afar. Yeah, this podcast does not condone that. Right. So the way you die when you ingest belladonna involves dilated pupils, loss of coordination, dry mouth, slurred speech, and then the inability to pee or poop, severe confusion, hallucination, convulsions, and finally, death. Right. You sense a common theme here, and it's death. And poop. And poop. Death and poop. Poop and death. <laughs> that order. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Our next ancient poisonous plant, we're going to skip to the letter H. Right, because that's how the alphabet works. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, sometimes it does. Right, so A, B, H, hemlock. <laughs> we are never having Kava and recording an episode again. <laughs> I know, why did we decide to do that? <laughs> um, so H, hemlock. Uh, hemlock is a flowering plant that can grow up to eight feet tall. That's like a basketball player's height. Right. Well, I think they're seven feet. It's taller than it's taller than Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> um, native to Europe and North Africa, hemlock is actually a member of the carrot family. It was used to execute prisoners in ancient Greece from as early as the fifth century BC. The most famous hemlock poisoning victim was the philosopher Socrates in 399 BC. And here's an account from Plato's Phaedo describing Socrates' death surrounded by his followers. Quote, The man laid his hands on Socrates and after a while examined his feet and legs, then pinched his foot hard and asked if he felt it. Socrates said no. Then after that, his thighs, and passing upwards in this way, he showed us that he was growing cold and rigid. And then again he touched him and said that when it reached his heart, he would be gone. The chill had now reached the region about the groin, and uncovering his face, which had been covered, he said, and these were his last words, Crito, we owe a cock to Asclepius. Pay it and do not neglect it. That, said Crito, shall be done, but see if you have anything else to say. To this question he made no reply, but after a little while he moved. The attendant uncovered him, his eyes were fixed, and Crito, when he saw it, closed his mouth and eyes. 
This account makes Socrates' death seem peaceful and painless, but that's not what it would have felt like. Hemlock paralyzes the body while keeping the mind aware. It slowly deactivates all your muscles, including finally the ones that let you breathe. So Socrates died of asphyxiation and he would have been aware of every minute of it. Yeah, so that definitely would not have been the peaceful, painless death that everyone assumed, but nobody would know it but Socrates. That's absolutely horrifying. Horrifying. Um, so Mandrake, because now we're skipping to M. Because <laughs> that's how the alphabet works. I mean, M does come after H. Right, it's how the alphabet works. Mandrake has a history that's steeped in lore. On the surface, it's a low-growing plant that produces pretty flowers and edible fruit. But if you are in a poisoning sort of mood, it's the root you want. And Mandrake root is creepy looking. It's kind of like a cross between ginger and carrot with weird looking limbs and hairs and growth. Ancient and medieval users thought the roots looked like malformed people and faces. And we'll put some pictures of of mandrake root in the show notes. There was a folk belief that if you dig up a mandrake root, the root would scream and anyone who heard the scream would fall down dead. It's kind of like that scene, Jenny, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets where they're harvesting mandrakes and they have to wear their headphones. Yeah, I totally remember that scene. So what I remember about that scene was that the mandrake roots they were using were not full grown, so they weren't completely at 100% potency, but still everybody had to wear these noise-canceling headphones to repot the mandrake because when you take the mandrake out of its old pot, it will scream. And if you hear it, you'll fall down dead. (laughs) Absolutely. The Harry Potter mandrake scene is totally based in ancient lore. And we will put a link to that clip in the show notes because it's really cool. So in addition to looking pretty freaky, mandrake root is a narcotic and a hallucinogen. In the right dosage, a wine cup full, according to the Greek doctor Dioscurides, knocks you unconscious. And the ancient surgeons sometimes use it as an anesthetic. Right. Too much of it, though, causes some pretty nasty symptoms, including asphyxiation and death, our old friends. Which makes you wish that Dioscurides had been a little bit more precise about how big a wine cup full is. Like, how big of a wine cup are we talking, Dioscurides? Are we talking like half full or completely full or right up to the brim? Or like, you know, like if you're in a restaurant, how much the waiter will pour you if you order a glass of wine? Like, can we be a little bit more precise about this? Jenny, you're overthinking this. It's a wine cup full. People will die on on a miscalculation here. I just can't be chill about this, Jen. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you the advice that if we'd contacted Pliny the Elder via the Ouija board, he would have given you. Why don't you put some water in that wine cup? Because because I'm not living in the ancient world and that is not our custom, <laughs> Ghost Pliny. <laughs> like my immediate thought is not to water my wine cup full of mandrake. <laughs> The directions don't say if I should or not, and now I'm even more confused. Could we could we maybe summon Dioscurides and ask him? Well, I don't know. Pliny is really, you know, he's been on standby for a while now. He might not be happy. We should use him. If we have him on standby, we should use him. Absolutely. Um, so we're now going to skip to O because O does technically come after M. Right, 100%. And we're getting to opium. So opium comes from the poppy plant, which was first cultivated around 3400 BC in Southwest Asia and Mesopotamia, possibly as a recreational drug. The Sumerians called it the joy plant. Poppy seeds have been found in much older graves, including a burial in Spain that dates from around 4,200 BC. The ancient Assyrians, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans were also confirmed opium users or lotus eaters. To get opium out of a poppy plant, Pliny tells us that you have to make an incision just beneath the place where the flower joins the stalk. You should do this at the third hour of the day on a still clear day when the dew had completely dried on the plant. And like, I don't know, maybe Pliny was having a trip when he wrote this down because this is awfully weird and specific. It's very weird and specific. Maybe he'd had some, you know, opium. Maybe he'd been eating some lotus. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe this is actually true. And you don't get a lot of opium out of the poppy plant when you do this. The thick gummy juice that leaks out should be collected on a piece of wool or maybe your thumbnail. Collecting enough of that to be useful is a painstaking process that involves returning day after day at the right time of day until you have enough to make lozenges and dry them in the sun. So opium was often used in medicine. It cured headaches and a number of other maladies, was a powerful ancient world sleeping pill, and was often used in surgery as a strong pain reliever. I just have such a disconnect between like, it's curing your headache and then used in surgery. Like, 
What was the dosage there? It's all in the dosage, Jen. Is it a wine cup full or a half wine cup full or a whole giant wine cup or like a little bit of a wine cup? And how stingy is this waiter? And where is the water? Right. Do we water this wine? I'm still hung up on this wine cup. (laughs) (laughs) So opium was taken in wine or milk, a.k.a. milk of the poppy, like Game of Thrones. Totally based on that. Exactly. And it was also smeared onto wool tampons and inserted into a woman's vagina to treat gynecological problems and cause abortions. I don't know what it does, Jenny. I guess put it in your vag and find out. (laughs) No, no. I just, I feel like I have to be like the concerned voice. Please don't do that. Don't do that. We're not (laughs) encouraging you to do that. No, don't put anything in your vag that might be opium. Don't put anything in and don't tell us about it. Right. We don't need to know. This is not our business. You do you with your bits. Whatever whatever you put in your bits. If it's opium, we don't need to know. I just think it's a bad idea, but what the heck do I know? I mean, do what you want. Wine cup full. Right. Put a wine cup full in your vag if that's what makes you happy. No! No! <laughs> dial it back! Self-care. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Opium was also used by the terminally ill in the ancient world to commit suicide, and it was mixed with hemlock to cause a painless death by execution. And as you may have gathered, opium could be lethal in large enough doses. It starts off producing a kind of sleepy euphoria, which descends into stupor. Your muscles relax, your breathing slows, and you die of respiratory failure. So now we're on to S because, you know, alphabet. So, um, snake venom. Ancient Romans didn't use animal poisons as much as plant-based poisons. In the realm of Pontus, there were ducks whose blood and meat were poisonous because they fed on hemlock in their natural environment so much that their bodies were saturated with it. Yeah, Pontic ducks, they were poisonous. Yeah, but if you ate them, you would die. And it'd be like, why'd I die? Duck. Because you're in Pontus and you ate some duck. Bad idea. That's why you died. Don't eat, don't eat the duck. Don't eat the duck. Okay. Ancient history fangirl lessons. Never, ever, ever work for the Carthaginians. <laughs> don't eat the Pontic ducks. <laughs> don't eat the Pontic what else? Ducks. Do we have other rules? We should list these rules on the website. So one famous <laughs> victim of snake bite was Cleopatra, who committed suicide by getting an asp to bite her. And when the ancient sources say asp, they probably don't mean the snake that we would call an asp today. Modern day asps are venomous, but the venom isn't usually lethal. The word asp or aspis in ancient Egyptian times was used as sort of a catch all term to refer to a number of different species of snake. And what killed Cleopatra may have been a much more deadly variety, the Egyptian cobra. So in planning her own suicide, Cleopatra reputedly tested a lot of different poisons on slaves condemned to death to see which one was least painful. So she's poisoning a whole bunch of slaves in in crappy fashion. I mean, Cleopatra, come on. We've got a quote here from Plutarch's The Lives of Antony. So the asp's poison induced a sleepy torpor and sinking. There was no spasm or groan, but a gentle perspiration of the face, while the perceptive faculties were easily relaxed and dimmed and resisted all attempts to rouse and restore them, as is the case with those who are soundly asleep. Right. That is not how it would have actually gone. If Cleopatra had used an Egyptian cobra, that venom stops nerve signals from being sent first to the muscles and as the poison progresses to the lungs and heart. It would not have been a fast or peaceful death. Cleopatra would have experienced severe swelling and bruising, headache and nausea, vomiting, dizziness, diarrhea, and abdominal pain, followed by respiratory failure. Oh, and she would have been paralyzed through most of this, which may be where her impression of sleepy torpor comes from. So those were just a few of the ways you could die if you had rich and powerful enemies in the ancient world. In many ancient societies, there was money on the table for people with a specialized knowledge of poisonous plants and their preparation, aka poison assassins. In ancient India, there's a myth that rulers gradually fed young girls low doses of poison to make them not only immune to most poisons, but thoroughly poisonous themselves. In effect, walking weapons that could kill at a touch. Some of the girls died during this process, but those who lived were used as assassins. These were the legendary Vishakanya, or poison girls. 
Vishakanya figure prominently in some ancient Indian legends. They're mentioned as far back as the Artha Shastra, an ancient Indian book on statescraft that dates from around the second century BC. We use this book a lot in our War Elephants episode. And the cool thing about the Artha Shastra is it talks about how you defeat an enemy in war, but it also talks about if you're facing an enemy that's a lot more powerful than you, the sneaky ways that you can defeat them anyway. And one of the ways is to send Vishakanya disguised as dancing girls into the house of the more powerful enemy. And they're even linked to Alexander the Great in the Secretum Secretorum, a document claiming to be letters written from Aristotle to Alexander the Great, but which is actually a forgery from the 900s AD. Aristotle mentions that time an enemy from India sent Alexander a fair maiden, which in her childhood had been nourished by the venom of serpents, whereby her nature was converted to the nature of serpents. Aristotle realized what she was and turned her back at the last second. Yeah, and there's also another legend that says Alexander Alexander died because he put his arms around a Vishakanya sent to him by King Porus, whom he defeated at the Battle of Hydaspes. Alexander treated King Porus super well after the Battle of Hydaspes because he impressed him a lot with his bravery, but I feel like King Porus had ample reason to send him a Vishakanya. I totally agree. <laughs> so if you're not sure why we're saying that, go back to War Elephants Part 1. Listen to the part where we talk about the Battle of Hydaspes. You'll get what we mean. Um, so that legend and others like it kept cropping up in more modern sources and articles during my research, but I couldn't find the original source for it. So that's pretty par for the course with the Vishakanya. They're figures of folklore, and it's uncertain what part of the legend existed as truth. Although Kashik Roy, in his book, India's Historic Battles from Alexander the Great to Cargill, mentions that ancient India had a tradition of beautiful women functioning as contract killers. They murdered their male clients by offering them poisoned alcohol while making love to them. Jenny, that is so Badass. It is badass. And I feel like that paragraph a little bit confused me because it was originally referring to the Vishakanya themselves. But I was just a little bit baffled by that because if you're so saturated with poison that you can kill at a touch, why would you need to have sex with the guy that you're targeting and then give him a poison beverage? Like, is all of that necessary? I don't know. We don't know, right? But I feel like that particular description, and I did see that cropping up elsewhere, the idea that the Vishakanya would sleep with their victims and feed them poisoned alcohol, that's a clue for us that maybe harkens back to a real tradition of women assassins who weren't poisonous themselves, but who were nonetheless expert poisoners. And that's actually pretty believable because although both men and women in the ancient world used poison, it was a method of killing frequently linked to women. And there are documented instances of women who were consummate poison assassins, and we're going to get into one of them in this episode. The first record of poisoning in ancient Rome dates to 331 BC. The story comes down to us in Livy's History of Rome, and he tells us that when a great pestilence gripped the city, the people blamed a group of women accused of poisoning on a massive scale. Over a hundred women were rounded up and condemned. In these early centuries, when there was an outbreak of disease in a community, women in particular were often blamed and punished for mass poisonings. In 182 BC, 3,000 people were put to death on charges of poisoning, chief among them the wife of a consul, after a number of high-ranking men died of an unknown plague. And I mean, this makes me think in the future, much later on to the, the witch trials. Yeah, I actually read an article when I was doing the research for this. It's called Poisons and Poisoning in Ancient Rome by David B. Kaufman. And that specifically talks about that. It mentions that women were often seen as scapegoats in the atmosphere, just of panic and paranoia that would sweep over these communities in ancient Rome in times of plague. And they would frequently target women and charge them with poisoning and then execute them in large numbers based on this doubtful evidence. And your rank wouldn't help you. One of the common threads that you can see in these stories of, you know, mass condemnations of women based on group poisoning accusations was that high-ranking women were also targeted. And you do see the same thing in the medieval era with accusations of witchcraft. In both times, women with a solid knowledge of herbal lore were seen with suspicion. People also used poison to commit suicide from early in the Roman Empire. During the Second Punic War in 211 BC, Hannibal lost the Battle of Capua against the Romans and a group of 27 Capuan senators, they were on the losing side, committed suicide by poisoning. In Livy's History of Rome, there's a rousing speech by one of the senators convincing the others to gank themselves. And I'm just going to read this to you here. This is a group of senators in a city that had lost a war and they were about to be treated like war prisoners usually are, which is not pleasantly. Quote, 
I shall not see the Roman generals emboldened by their insolent victory, nor shall I be dragged in chains to the city of Rome as a spectacle and a triumph. In my house, a feast is spread and in readiness today. When we have had our fill of wine and food, the same cup which has been served to me shall be carried round. That draught will defend the body from torture, the mind from insults, eyes and ears from seeing and hearing all the bitter and unseemly things which await the vanquished. Men will be ready to light a great pyre and throw our lifeless bodies upon it. This is the one way at once honorable and independent that leads to death. Even our enemies will admire our courage. Sometime after this, poison as a method of both killing others and oneself really took off in ancient Rome. I mean, how could it not with that speech? (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole conversation to be had about the noble suicide in ancient Rome. Poisonings became commonplace at every level of society. People frequently targeted their own family members to speed up inheritances, rid themselves of unwanted spouses, and get rid of inconvenient stepchildren and more. Jenny, Mm -hmm. don't poison me. So far, you're serving my purposes. (laughs) <laughs> by 80 BC. That was an uncomfortable laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, getting rid of your co-host to take over on your own. <laughs> I mean, you and I both know we've been eyeing each other surreptitiously the whole time and going, how can I gain the upper hand? <laughs> I'm just putting it out in the open now. <laughs> we just put it out in the open. Don't worry, guys. We're not going to poison right. each other. You're going to ha- you're gonna be stuck with both of us. We both have tasters when we hang out and we just try to not make it up. Obvious. If I wind up dead of poisoning, <laughs> please, you can contact me on the Ouija board, but you know who did it. Ditto. Seriously, <laughs> if she winds up on Dateline telling you a sob story about me, she's lying. I'm a great manipulator. Don't let her manipulate Keith Morrison. <laughs> you and your Keith Morrison crush. That's a whole other conversation. She has a you massive a crush, crush on Keith Morrison. She loves him. She loves him. <laughs> You love him. Yeah, this is not going into the episode. Anyway, it probably is, actually. The great thing about it is I control what goes in the episode. Yeah, I have no say, guys. Anyway. You're just my prisoner. She's sitting on the naughty stairs. She's been there for a while. I'm on the naughty Jamonian stairs. Me, Sejanus's head. Right. It's a bunch of bodies. And Jen. Oh my God, what a detour. <laughs> Can we move on now? We were telling a yes, story. Please. Yeah, anyway. So, so by 80 BC, poisoning was such a problem that Sulla, the dictator of Rome at the time, had to introduce stringent laws against it. Laws that targeted both the poisoner and anyone who prepared, sold, or bought poison or had it in their possession. They're coming for you, Jenny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But this must have been a really difficult law to enforce because many of the poisons we've looked at also had medicinal uses. So it was totally reasonable for someone to have aconite or mandrake root in their house, for example, because aconite was also used to treat the common cold and mandrake to remove warts. (coughs) Sounds like like you need some aconite. Really does. And those feel like very, very... Um, extreme ways of doing either of those things. Yeah, but it's the ancient world and people were hardcore. This it, this is kind of like if a leave a robot could kill you. But actually, I mean, they can kill you if you take enough of them. I guess. I mean, I actually don't know how much a leave would kill me if I had to kill myself and I just had to leave. So this easy access to poisons coupled with lax law enforcement, maybe why the poisoning situation got worse, not better, in the years after Sulla's reign. The Vichaconia may have been a myth, but a number of real-life female assassins did live and work in ancient Rome, and they were expert in the use of poisons. The most notorious was a woman called Lacusta the Poisoner. And this is where we get into our real story here. Locusta was active in the first century AD, and at this point in Roman history, high-profile people never sat down to dinner without having a taster try their food. Prudent emperors kept poison suicide kits close to hand just in case things went really south, and the satirist Juvenal cracked a joke that poisoning had become a totally accepted way for people to get rid of anyone who looked at them funny. We don't know much about Locusta's early life. She was born sometime in the first century AD in Gaul, somewhere in modern-day France. 
lands. Gaul had been conquered by Julius Caesar only at most 100 years before in a horrific genocide in which one in five Gallic people were killed, a million were enslaved, and over 800 cities destroyed. So the Gaul that Lacoste was born into was probably still ravaged and shell-shocked, full of downtrodden people with significant chips on their shoulders. And no doubt, Lacoste developed her strong knowledge of deadly herbal lore in Gaul, tapping into ancient local knowledge of herbs that could both kill and cure. When Locusta hit Rome, it was right at the peak of poisoning culture. Rome was full of rich, ambitious social climbers in a cutthroat political environment, people who had enemies to get rid of and deep pockets to pay for the service. Locusta made a name for herself as a poisoner of the rich and famous, and she was particularly sought after because she was really good at making her poisoning victims look like they died of natural causes. Lacoste was arrested more than once, but she'd made powerful friends and clients, people she had a lot of incriminating dirt on. And somehow, the charges against her never seemed to stick. When we meet Lacoste in the ancient sources, she's in jail again, already a notorious poisoning assassin with several confirmed kills under her belt. This time, she's pulled out of jail by her most high-profile client yet, Agrippina the Younger, Empress of Rome. Agrippina had a job for Lacoste poison her husband, the Emperor Claudius. Agrippina was no stranger to poisonings herself. She'd poisoned her previous husband, a respected and fabulously wealthy statesman named Passienus Crispus, about seven years before, after she'd convinced him to name her his heir. She'd then gone on to marry the Emperor Claudius, who was also her uncle. Ew. Yeah, that family tree. We're gonna get there. We will get there in spectacular fashion. Just you wait. We will. You're going to meet one of my favoritest people in the ancient world, Germanicus the Manicus. Yeah, we'll get to him. So back to Agrippina, who was the daughter of Germanicus the Manicus. So after marrying her uncle, Agrippina influenced him to adopt her son by a previous husband, Nero, that Nero, and make him heir to the empire, completely sidelining his own son by a previous marriage, Britannicus. Claudius went along with this plan for a while, but then started showing signs that he was thinking of favoring Britannicus again. The only way to preserve her son's path to power, as Agrippina saw it, was to murder Claudius before he could officially change his mind. Agrippina, as we said before, most likely knew her way around poison, but this wasn't just any inconvenient husband she was conspiring to murder. This was the emperor of Rome. First, he was very well guarded. Second, what Agrippina needed was something really specific. See, if the poison acted too fast, the fact of the murder would be obvious. But if it was more of the slow and wasting variety, Claudius would have time to change his mind about which boy got to be his heir before he died. Agrippina needed a Goldilocks poison. Not too fast, not too slow, just right. So she hired a specialist. Locusta was hauled out of jail and given her assignment. And here's how it went down. There were two big hurdles to get through. First, a former slave named Narcissus, part of Claudius's inner circle, was a supporter of Britannicus, and he was deeply suspicious of Agrippina. Narcissus guarded Claudius closely and was very protective of Britannicus. But all this stressing out about the line of succession caused him to have some kind of health crisis, and he had to go recover at a medicinal hot spring. The sources don't say his sudden illness was Lacusta's doing, but it does look awfully convenient, doesn't it? It sure does look awfully convenient. It does. Spelled out, it really does look that way, guys. The second hurdle was a eunuch named Halotus, and his name just looks like Halitosis to me. So from now on, we're calling him Halitosis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no dignity even in death. Claudius, like any sensible Roman emperor, had his own taster, and that would be halitosis. <laughs> and somehow, possibly through a hefty bribe, I mean definitely through a hefty bribe, let's be honest, Agrippina managed to get halitosis on board. And that's the thing about tasters, they're vulnerable to bribery. Of course, they're only human. Right. They got families to feed. They got people to feed, you know? I mean, if I was halitosis, maybe I'd think twice. So, Lacusta's poison was sprinkled on a mushroom dish, Claudius's favorite food. He loved mushrooms. Yeah, and Claudius wolfed those mushrooms down. He sucked them down. 
He had to be carried from the banquet, apparently so roaring drunk and full of mushrooms, he couldn't see or speak. That also happens to me when I eat mushrooms. <laughs> and, and drink. <laughs> I, I blame the mushrooms, but maybe I should be blaming the drink. I don't know. It depends on what I'm using as a wine cup full measure. <laughs> I should ask Dioscurities, am I doing it wrong? <laughs> um, so for a little while, it looked like poor Claudius was going to bite it. But the poison wasn't acting fast enough. It was starting to look like, oh my goodness, he might get better. Right, he's not quite dead. (laughs) He thinks maybe he'll go for a walk. (laughs) And that was quite inconvenient for everybody. However, luckily for Agrippina and Halitosis and Locusta, Claudius's doctor was also in on the plot. He plunged a feather down the emperor's throat, ostensibly to get him to throw up whatever was making him sick. But the feather was coated with a fast-acting poison, probably from Locusta. This took effect quickly, and Claudius did in fact bite it. And after his death, Agrippina installed her son Nero on the throne. Nero, incidentally, joked that mushrooms must be the food of the gods because Claudius became a god by eating them. Too soon, Nero. Right, way too soon. Get some class, dude. Well, I mean... Not known for his class. Right, I agree. Agrippina, also not known for her class, turned around and accused Locusta of poisoning her husband and had her thrown in jail and condemned to death. Is she part Carthaginian? I had that thought too. Worst client ever. So we're just going to put her in that category. Another rule, don't work for Agrippina the Younger. Right, don't accept freelance assignments from Agrippina the Younger. Unless you're in jail and you have no choice. That is another ancient history fangirl rule to live by. So wait, let's run down our rules again. So don't work for the Carthaginians. Don't work, no gift basket. It's good enough. No gift baskets, do not be seduced. Don't care what's in them, even the good Cheetos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like there are some elephant rules, right? If you're fighting an elephant in hand-to-hand combat, go for the driver. Go for the driver. And it's a group activity. Also, if you're fighting an elephant in hand-to-hand combat, just be like, could we drink it out instead? <laughs> right. If you're fighting an elephant, you should be drinking because the elephants are also drinking and you should all be on the same page. Exactly. You've got to be fair, guys. Got to be fair. Right. If you just Number one, you should first be drunk. Number two, you should have your posse with you. Number three, go for the driver. Number four, be drunk. Did I already say be drunk? Oh, I remember. Uh, number four, never cross the Janus. Right. Number five, never cross Tiberius. Right. So those are the five rules. Two of them might be be drunk when you're fighting the elephants. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's like Fight Club. We've got to mention it at least twice. <laughs> Because you're really not supposed to mention it, so we're going to mention it twice. (laughs) It's Elephant Fight Club. (laughs) It's Elephant Fight Club. Mention it twice. (laughs) First rule of Elephant Fight Club, be drunk while taking part in Elephant Fight Club. Right. Second rule of Elephant Fight Club, talk about it all the time. (laughs) No one will believe you anyway. Exactly. And this is not an endorsement to go fight elephants, please. No, be nice to the elephants. The elephants of today are not war elephants. No, and they're lovely creatures who need our help. Correct. Now, I'm going to get back to our new Emperor Nero because we've segued way too long. Our new Emperor Nero had been super impressed by the Custa's poisoning skills. And it turned out there were a few people that he wanted dead. So first on his list was his stepbrother, an erstwhile rival to the throne, 13-year-old Britannicus, Claudius' son. So Nero had Lacusta hauled out of jail once again. This is starting to be a theme in her life. I know. She really should invest in like, I don't know, like a really good... A really good defense team. (laughs) Defense team, but also like she should get like her go bag ready, like with all of her like skincare essentials and... Right. She's got to have the skincare essentials because I'm sure if she knows like the herbs to kill people, she also knows the right herbs for skincare. Absolutely. Moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. It's damp in those jail cells. Man, I bet Locusta made some pretty badass flying ointment. Oh my God. Could you imagine? She'd probably high the whole time. Flying for days would be amazing. Anyway, Locusta was given her new assignment. Shuffle Britannicus off of his mortal coil, Lacusta prepared a potion, and Nero had it administered by one of Britannicus's own tutors. There's a chilling line, incidentally, in Tacitus's annals about how, quote, 
for that no one about the person of Britannicus should regard either right or loyalty was a point long since provided for. And I realized that that is like really convoluted in terms of wording. But what I took it to mean was that everyone close to Britannicus, all his tutors, his slaves, people who'd been with him since babyhood, knew that the emperor was out to get Britannicus. And showing loyalty to him or trying to protect him could mean their own death. So even his nearest and dearest could be enlisted in a plot to kill him out of self-preservation. And you've got to feel bad for this kid. Gotta feel bad for this kid. And also you've got to feel bad for the nearest and dearest around him that they're in that position. Yeah. So anyway, the poison didn't work. According to Tacitus, his bowels were opened. It probably made him quite sick. He probably had diarrhea because Jenny has given me every single paragraph about diarrhea to read in this episode. Hold up a sec. What, what are you talking about? Because she has the humor of a small child. The humor of a small child. Okay, maybe. <laughs> Do we need to contact Pliny and ask him his opinion on this? We should ask him to be the referee in our conversation about whether or not I have the humor of a small child. <laughs> Pliny, could you please mediate? <laughs> so anyway, our man Britannicus, much like me, was a survivor of his diarrhea and he passed the poison without dying. His brother Nero did not take this well. He summoned Lacosta and demanded an explanation. She told him that she'd made the poison slow acting so that people wouldn't get too suspicious. This was, after all, her speciality. Nero replied sarcastically, it's likely that I am afraid of the Julian law. Yeah, and then he personally flogged her which, you know, also worst client ever. Oh my God, worst client ever. Yeah, we're just putting him on that list. People not to work for. The Carthaginians, <laughs> Agrippina the Younger, and Nero. He flogged her and then he forced her to mix a new medicine right there in his room. One that would cause death, quote, as abrupt as if it were the summary work of steel from Tacitus. Nero tested the poison on a baby goat and the animal took five hours to die. And then he forced Locusta to distill the poison over and over to increasing levels of potency until finally they tried it on a pig and it immediately fell down dead. So the poison was finally ready to be used on poor Britannicus. And it went down like this. Nero through a friendly family dinner. Among the invitees were Britannicus, Octavia, who is both Britannicus's sister and Nero's wife, and Nero's mom, Agrippina. To quote Tacitus, it was the regular custom that the children of the emperors should take their meals in sight of their relatives, seated with other nobles of their age at a more frugal table of their own. There Britannicus dined, and as his food, solid and liquid, was tried by a taster chosen from his attendants, a drink, still harmless, very hot, and already tasted, was handed to Britannicus. Then, when he declined it as too warm, cold water was poured in, and with it, the poison. Britannicus began to experience what looked like a grand mal seizure, falling down, convulsions. Tacitus says that, quote, the poison ran so effectively through his whole system that he lost simultaneously both voice and breath. And here's how the guests reacted, again from Tacitus. Quote, there was a startled movement in the company seated around, and the more obtuse began to disperse. Those who could read more clearly sat motionless, their eyes riveted on Nero. He, without changing his recumbent attitude, observed that this was a most usual incident due to the epilepsy with which Britannicus had been inflicted from his earliest infancy. Sight and sensation would return by degrees. But from Agrippina, in spite of her control over her features, came a flash of such terror and mental anguish that it was obvious she had been completely in the dark. Octavia, youth and inexperience notwithstanding, had learned to hide her griefs, her affections, her every emotion. Consequently, after a short silence, the amenities of the banquet were resumed. <coughs> I'm poisoning her slowly. Very slowly, guys. Yeah. Wasting sickness. She wants to eke out a few more episodes before she knocks me off. The whole series on Germanicus the Manicus, once it's written, she's just going to poison me, guys. And take Germanicus. Right. I'm taking him for myself in my ancient history harem with Alaric. <laughs> <laughs> so here's this horrible scene. 
everyone calmly carrying on with this banquet, including Britannicus's sister, either oblivious to what was going on or too terrified of Nero to bat an eye, while Britannicus goes into violent convulsions. Britannicus died later that night, and Nero had him buried without even a eulogy the next day in the pouring room. So incidentally, Agrippina, Nero's mom, would have been horrified at this too, and Tacitus agrees that she was. See, she'd been having trouble getting Nero to do what she wanted. He was in that rebellious teenager phase, and she'd threatened to switch sides and back Britannicus instead, who she'd worked so hard earlier to sideline. Nero poisoning Britannicus in front of her would have been a direct F off to her and a very, very chilling threat. It says in Tacitus that this expression of anguish flashed over her face because she'd been in the dark. She didn't know how dangerous Nero was and this was her wake up call. Yeah. And here's a disturbing detail that just amplifies the horror of this scene, again from Tacitus. Quote, The assertion is made by many contemporary authors that for days before the murder, the worst of all outrages had been offered by Nero to the boyish years of Britannicus. And I'm pretty sure he means sexual assault here. Quote, In which case, it ceases to be possible to regard his death as either premature or cruel, though it was amid the sanctities of the table, without even a respite allowed in which to embrace his sister, and under the eyes of his enemies me that the hurried doom fell on this last scion of the Claudian house upon whom lust had done its unclean work before the poison. This is just heartbreaking. It doesn't take much to connect the dots and see the horror of this 13-year-old kid's final days. After surviving one poisoning attempt, Britannicus had to be living with the knowledge that death could come from anyone he trusted at any time and there was nothing he could do to stop it. Add to that days of horrible abuse at Nero's hands leading up to his death at a banquet where everyone, including the emperor, was pretending this was fine. And what you get is a perversely cruel end for a kid whose only crime was making Nero feel threatened by virtue of who his father had been. And if you listen to the episode where we go into detail on Nero's death, which was Praetorian Guard Part 2, and you found yourself feeling bad for Nero, don't. Yeah, don't. (laughs) I just can't (laughs) stress it enough. Right. So things did not go well for Britannicus. But after this poisoning, things started to look up for Lacosta. Nero was very grateful. He gave Lacosta a full pardon for all her crimes. That's a win. And set her up with a lavish villa in the countryside and helped her establish a poisoning school where she trained some of the most accomplished poisoners of the age. She became the official poisoner of the imperial court. Nero sent her regular high paying work and let her practice with impunity. For the next 13 years or so of Nero's reign, Lacosta enjoyed a very high station in the empire. Some sources say she killed as many as 10,000 people during her career, which was a possibility because she was allowed to use convicts and slaves to test out her poisons. I mean, she sounds like a serial killer. She does, but the thing about serial killers is that they're doing it for personal reasons, and she was basically doing it for the money. And also, if she was running a school, she probably had to give demonstrations to her students, so she probably needed live examples. So I imagine this was a regular occurrence. So in return for being a loyal customer, Locusta gave Nero a poisoning kit and a golden box. We assume this would have been a fast-acting, painless-as-possible poison that the emperor could use to tap out early, just in case things went south, and eventually things went very, very south for Nero. And like I said before, we cover his death in more detail in Praetorian Guard Part 2. It's definitely worth going back and listening to that because his death was really haunting and he definitely gets what's coming to him. So we're not going to go into too much detail on it here, but suffice it to say that it turns out Nero found himself completely abandoned with a grisly death sentence hanging over his head and suddenly he had very good use for Locusta's golden box of tap out early. But here's the thing, when Nero found out his world was collapsing, after a period of flappy panic, he took a nap because of course he did. And when he woke up, he found his servants had stripped his rooms bare, taking everything of value, even his bedding. Oh, and of course, Lacosta's golden tap out early box. So Nero was left to beg his remaining friends and slaves to do him a solid and kill him off. Nobody felt like doing that. Giant surprise. So Nero was left to kill himself and he just did not have the nards for it. He begged his remaining friends and retainers for one among them to, quote, set him an example and kill themselves first. And this request was also met with a round of not it. Yeah, understandably. (laughs) Yeah, so eventually Nero had to stab himself in the neck with a dagger with a little help from his secretary who maybe was excited about stabbing his boss in the neck with a dagger. 
This is the tiniest violin playing for you, Nero. Not that you could play a violin. You played the lyre. Right. And it's all in that other episode. I'm just going to stop talking about it. Go listen to Praetorian Guard Part 2. It's a good episode. Yeah. The next person to take power was Galba, an anti-corruption crusader who refused to pay the customary bribe to the Praetorian Guard not to murder him. And this was a decision he would definitely live to regret. But not for very long. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But before that happened, according to Cassius Dio, in the case of Lacusta and others of the scum that had come to the surface in Nero's day, he ordered them to be led in chains throughout the whole city and then to be executed. So that is how Locusta's run of luck ended with Nero's death. And that's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, you can come and chat with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. You can also visit our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. Before we go, if you like what we do, don't forget to leave us a review in whatever app you're listening to us on. The reviews help with the algorithms, the magical science of whatever. Whatever that alchemy is. Exactly. And they help us to get noticed. And we can use all the help that we can get. And if you're not the sort of person who leaves reviews because you just don't do that, then tell a friend about the podcast because that also helps us get new listeners and get noticed. Absolutely. Word of mouth is awesome. And if you like what we do and you want to support us, please consider donating to our Ko-Fi fund. Coffee, Ko-Fi. I don't know how to pronounce this. Ko-Fi. It's spelled Ko-Fi, but I guess it's supposed to be coffee. Ko-Fi fund. Just go to our website and click on buy us a latte, which is the green button in the bottom left. These funds help us pay for things like hosting, research materials, sound, and caffeinated beverages because basically we don't sleep. We don't. I mean, if I told you the time we were recording this, you would probably laugh at us. The only time we sleep Sleep is when we're in a flabby panic and we have to take a nap. Or when Jenny gives us flying ointment. Well, yeah, but we're really busy. We have a rich internal life when that <laughs> happens. So it's not much rest. <laughs> don't make flying ointment by yourselves. We don't condone that. Don't try this at home. Thank you to everyone who has donated to our, our Kofi account. Thank you to the amazing people we've been talking to on Twitter. We can't wait to see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. And thank you guys so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.